Well, as I was uh, growing up as a kid and even into adulthood, my parents did a lot of two things, and that was a lot of head shaking and a lot of face palming. This is like, really, really, Chad. Uh, in fact, some of you are familiar with Pavlov's dogs, uh, basically where he worked with dogs and, uh, and ultimately connected the sound of a bell ringing to meet, and then ultimately getting to the point where he could just ring the bells and, and bell and the dogs would start drooling. And I actually experienced the same conditioning in my own life, except for me, it was when the house phone rang in the evening, I would immediately get nauseous because I was sure it was just a teacher or a principal yet again calling my parents to inform them on what I had done bad or caused trouble at school that day. In fact, there were times when the phone rang, I just got, I just go to my bedroom because I knew I was going to be grounded for an indefinite period of time. So just head on over and, uh, and I graduated, I didn't just graduate high school, but I'm convinced that I didn't just graduate high school, but graduated early uh, because the teachers and administrators decided they just could not handle another semester of the life force that was Chad. It's just because I caused a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, and, and as a side note, joking aside, it was one of the things that uh, made, it, uh, uh, made it hardest in my life, I think, to truly trust God. Uh, to trust his love and his grace and mercy, and that it was actually big enough to handle all of my screw-ups and bad choices. And if I'm honest, there's still many times that I wrestle with that today, just as many of you do as well. In fact, it's part of the reason that we're doing the series that we're doing leading into Christmas. And uh, all of us uh, have extended family members that we are not exactly proud of, uh, they may be on your side or on your spouse's side. You kind of hope that they don't show up to certain events. Maybe they're on your mom or dad's side. I mean, and, and you know what I mean. And you, you may love them. You're just glad that they live a state or two or maybe a country away. Uh, we all have them. Uh, maybe you're that shady or a little bit challenging family member, you know, so it's good to be here. And what we've done during this Christmas series to get ready for Christmas is to study something that seems so unchristmassy. And that is studying a genealogy, the genealogy we find in the book of Matthew. Because when Matthew begins his Christmas story, he begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And we discovered that he doesn't just include the strange and R-rated, unusual characters. He actually draws our attention to them. And we've asked, why in the world would Matthew do that? But as we've said, it's because they're part of the story. But maybe more importantly, it's because they're the point of the story. Because Matthew is tell, about to tell the story of Jesus, and he's about to reinforce to his first century, primarily, predominantly Jewish culture, to, uh, to this idea that God has invited us to approach him, not based on our ability or what we've done, but to approach him based on his ability and what he has done for us. And it was going to be very, very difficult for them to embrace it, just like it's very difficult for us to embrace it. But he said, you need to understand that Jesus is related to Abraham and to David, which means that he is set up to be the Messiah. But in the genealogy, he stops and points out the people that needed especially what we all need. That's grace and mercy and forgiveness, the forgiveness of God. And then Matthew points out the faults of the person that Jesus is most closely associated to in his genealogy. Uh, everybody knows his name. 
and a story. And when Matthew points out this particular character, instead of just going on and pointing out some of the wonderful things about this individual, in an over-the-top way, he says, remember, remember that though this man is most closely associated with the Messiah, when it came to his personal life, his morality, his character, his ethics, he was at least, at least in one season of his life, a dismal failure. In fact, you may not even know this story, but this guy, out of insecurity and fear, told a lie one time, and it cost over 80 innocent men their life. This guy betrayed one of his most loyal friends to the point of having him put to death in order to cover a secret. This guy ran around on his wife. This guy so destroyed his family that even his kids went to war with him. There are so many embarrassing moments and seasons in this man's life, and yet this is the man most closely associated with the name of Jesus. In fact, some time back, uh, my dad actually told me that of all of the individuals in the Old Testament, he struggles with this one the most, and it's because of what we're going to talk about today. So here's how Matthew begins his genealogy. It's in Matthew 1, verse 1. Uh, If you follow along in your Bible app, you don't need to turn there because we're going to learn his story from the Old Testament today. Uh, But here it is. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And Matthew knows that he's not actually uh, David's son, but he knows he's the great, 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 great grandson. We'll get that in a minute of David. But right at the start, here's the man whose name uh, is most closely associated with Jesus, David. But look at the way Matthew positions David in, in the genealogy and how he words it. This is the gene- genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. We talked about them three weeks ago. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, also talked about her. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, who TJ talked about last week, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And if we'd had one more Sunday in December, I would have loved to talk about Ruth. Ruth is one of my favorite books and stories in the Old Testament. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father, and he gives us a descriptor of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, and he should have said, and Solomon was the father of, who was the father of, but he pauses, and he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if you're trying to make up a story, or make up a religion, or fabricate a movement, you don't do what Matthew just did. Matthew, it's like, Matthew, what, look, why not David the shepherd, or David you know, the shepherd boy, or David the psalmist, or David the warrior, poet, king? I mean, there's so many wonderful things that you could have said about David, and instead, when he gets to David and his genealogy, he says, oh yeah, uh, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. And in doing so, he just surfaces all of this junk and drama and dysfunction and surfaces a page and a chapter in the life of David that David would give anything to go back and undo. Why would Matthew draw attention to King David's biggest failure? Because it's the point of the story. Remember, Matthew is about to tell the good news of Jesus, and he reminds his very Jewish audience, and he reminds us that this man, who was the preeminent king and the focal point of the kingdom of Israel, he was a sinner in every sense of the word. He was a failure. 
as a, as a leader, as a friend, as a father, and as a husband. And I'm going to read out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and let me give you kind of the setup. Uh, as a reminder, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of ancient manuscripts that tell one story uh, stretched out over hundreds and thousands of years. The story of David takes place a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And here's what happens. There's a prophet named Samuel and God nudges him and says, I want you to go anoint a new king, a child king. And he sends him to a little town called Bethlehem. Now, for some of you, maybe you didn't know that the first mention of Bethlehem is not the birth of Jesus. It's actually a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And it happens to be where a man named Jesse and his eight sons live. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem in search of the home of Jesse. He finds the home and he comes in. He says, hey, I want you to gather all your sons in the living room because I have a very special message for one of your sons. So Jesse, instead of calling all eight sons, only calls seven of the sons. The youngest is out taking care of the sheep with the hired hands. The dad figures, well, he probably doesn't count. Anyways, Samuel doesn't know any of this. So he gets the sons together. Samuel looks at the oldest son and thinks to himself, this must be the king. I mean, look at him. He's like rugged and strong and handsome and good looking. He just looks like a king. And internally, God nudges Samuel and says, nope, he's not the one. So then he goes to the number two child, says, okay, second born, lots of spunk, lots of strength. And God says, nope. And the third one, fourth one, fifth, he goes through all seven sons and senses from God that none of these are God's choice. So he says to Jesse, like, hey, I hate to ask this, but is this all of your sons? He's like, well, there's David. He's out taking care of the sheep. He's the youngest. I figure he didn't count. Samuel says, well, we're going to sit down and we're going to wait here until David arrives. And maybe it took all day, but they get him and they bring him in. He's all sweaty. He probably stinks. He's out, been out taking care of sheep. And here's this wild-eyed teenage boy. And God goes, that's your king. Samuel gets up, says, okay. And he anoints him with oil and says, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And of course, David doesn't have any idea what that means. He just goes back out and starts taking care of sheep again. And you just need to read the story. But years go by in a very dramatic and incredible series of events, and it's just one of my favorite sections of the Jewish scriptures. Little David the shepherd boy becomes the second king of Israel, a warrior king. And then many years go by, and then one day, David, he's, he's in his palace, and he's looking around going, man, look, look at how blessed I am. Look at how well I'm living, I'm taken care of. And then he looks out the window, and he sees the elaborate tent that was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle uh, was essentially where God dwelt. And in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. There was some manna from traveling um, from Egypt. And there was the rod of Aaron that budded. The stories you need to read. And the Israelites carried this box around with them anywhere they went. And it represented the presence of God. Now, the Israelites knew that God was bigger than a box. He didn't live in a box. But it represented the presence of God. And it was the focal point their worship. But it dwelt in a tent. And David thought, God does not need to be camping out anymore. If I'm going to live in a house, then my God needs to live in a house. And so he decides to build a temple for God. And that's, that's where I want to pick up reading in 2 Samuel 7 verse 8. A prophet, Nathan, and remember that name, he comes to David and he gives this message. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Now I will make your name great, like, like the names of the greatest men on earth. 
3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus, David, Nathan tells David that God says, I'm going to make your name great, like the greatest men on earth. So just a quick survey. Uh, before you arrived this morning, how many of you had ever heard of David? Just raise your hand. Okay, so just look around. So, so the interesting thing is, this came true. Something that Nathan says 3,000 years uh, ago, people all over the world, in many different languages, in hundreds, or hundreds of languages, many, many different nations, different regions, or in different religions, they know who David is. That was predicted 3,000 years ago. Interesting coincidence. So essentially, Nathan says uh, it, it, it comes true. Uh, we skip to verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. That is, that for generations to come, people will know your name. And when your days are over, meaning when you die and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And you're going to have a son who will be king, and he is the one who will build a house for my name. So in other words, David, you're not going to be the one that builds me a temple. But your son, who by the way, hasn't been born just yet, uh, he's going to build the temple, and you don't know this, but it's going to become one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And, and the part that comes next is so important for us, because may, maybe this will explain some of the tension between God's judgment and God's love. He says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. In, in other words, when he and my people disobey and rebel against me, I'm, I'm going to punish them because I'm a good father. And I'm not going to let that go un, unnoticed. But, but my love will, what's the next word? Never. My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So it's like a double solidification. This is a promise that I'm making and it will not be broken. And this was an unconditional promise to David. Your, your throne, your name, your family lineage your, will be established forever. And that's the promise. And then four chapters later, just four chapters later, in the same book of the Bible, David tests the patience and the promise of God. And he does it in the most extreme ways imaginable. Four chapters later, we're introduced to the story that all of us know bits and pieces of, and, and I'm going to condense it into about 20 seconds, but you should read it for yourself. Uh, he's on the wall of his palace one night. He's walking around. He's, he's getting middle-aged. He's getting a little older. All of his soldiers are off fighting. He's on the palace one night. He looks down from his palace wall and sees another rooftop, and he sees this woman naked and having a bath. So, of course, David's smart and says, who's that? And his servant says, well, that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. You know, your loyal army general, Uriah. Well, where is Uriah? Well, he's out fighting. Well, she must be having a tough time. I'd like to give her some encouragement. Let's have her come over. And so I'd like to talk to his wife. Well, they do more than talk. And then a few weeks later, she sends a messenger to him saying, I am pregnant with your child. Now David has a mess on his hands. 
So he sends for Uriah and takes him, takes him off the battlefield. He makes some reason uh, up for needing to meet. And then he meets with him, and then when he's done, he says, you know, Uriah, you're already in the city. It's late. You can't go, uh, go, go back. So just, just go home and enjoy some time with your wife, and then tomorrow you can return to the field. So he sends Uriah away. And the next morning, he's informed. Uriah, he didn't go home. In fact, he slept right outside uh, the gate and the king's doors. He says, Uriah, why didn't you go home to your your wife? And Uriah says, how can I go home and spend time in the comfort of my home and enjoy my wife when my soldiers are out on the battlefield? And David says, well, I need you to stay one more day, one more night. And then he gets, gets Uriah good and drunk. He says, Uriah, okay, you know, we've had a great time tonight. Just, just go home, uh, spend the night. Tomorrow you can return to your men. And then uh, David the next morning discovers that once again, Uriah spent the night outside the gate. And he says, Uriah, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, how can I go to the comforts of my home when my, my men are out sweating and bleeding and dying on the battlefield? At which point you just, you'd think God would go, step back and go, okay, David, Uriah. David, Uriah. You know what? I think I'll just choose Uriah. It's just like, because he's the only righteous person in the story so far, but God has made an unconditional promise. And he made it to David and to those that would come through him. And then David does the unthinkable. In the privacy of his office, he writes a message to the commander on the battlefield, and David writes this message, Joab. Tomorrow in battle, I want you to put Uriah and his men front and center, and then in the heat of battle, I want you to withdraw everyone else from around them, and I want you to leave him exposed. And Joab would understand this is a death sentence. David seals this note, and get this, he hands it to Uriah to deliver to the commander. So basically, he puts Uriah's own death sentence in his hands. Why? All because David wants to keep a secret. Joab, he gets the message, he obeys the king, and the next day, Uriah and his men are in the forefront of the battle. And like you can just picture this in your mind like it's a movie, like the ultimate betrayal. He's out there fighting, and then suddenly, everybody just withdraws. And the text tells us that Uriah was such a valiant warrior that he and his men pursued the enemy and fought them all the way to the gates of the very city they were trying to take. And then an archer on the wall finally shoots Uriah down in the heat of battle. The message gets back to Bathsheba, gets back to David. She mourns the loss of her husband. David brings her into his home and he marries her. And from his perspective, problem fixed. No one will ever know. But God knew. And the writer tells us, But the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And now God has to make a decision. He has to make a decision. He has to decide, do I retract my promise? I know I made this unconditional promise of unconditional love, uh, but in light of these new circumstances and his incredible unrighteousness, maybe it's one that I go back on. Well, Nathan The prophet comes into this picture once again. He comes to David. He confronts them. And he says, what you have done is evil. You have sinned. And we're told that David goes to the tabernacle. He falls down before the altar of God. He confesses his sin. And he does not say, I made a mistake. He says, I have sinned against you. And I beg your forgiveness. 
And incredibly, God does not break his promise to David. He does not break his... And God decides to forgive David of his sin. But at the same time, because God is a good and just God, God decides to humble and to punish him. And God's discipline of David is absolutely brutal. But his promise remained unconditional. As one commentator put it, God dragged David through hell sideways. His entire family falls apart. The baby boy that was born to Bathsheba lives for a few days and then dies. What David had done becomes public. David's sons end up going to war with each other. His favorite son murders his oldest son. His favorite general, Joab, murders his favorite son. His family is split. The kingdom is divided for a time. He has to flee the palace for a while. His son humiliates him in ways that you just can't imagine unless you read the story for yourself. And there's this unimaginable chaos and bloodshed. And yet through all of this, this incredible personal disaster for David, God never withdraws his promises. Because in spite of that, 990 years later, a man in the line of David named Joseph with his pregnant wife Mary, who by the way would have been from the same tribe as Joseph, and thus she herself was also a descendant of David, made their way to the city of Bethlehem that by the first century was known as the city of David. And she gave birth to the great, 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 great grandson of David. Why? Because God keeps his promises. Now, if you're Matthew, you're an ex-tax collector, and you know exactly what it means to be forgiven of incredible sin. If you're Matthew the ex-traitor, and you're about to tell the greatest story ever told of a Savior coming into the world and dying to pay for all of mankind's sins, so that men and women... And boys and girls and children could come to God on the basis on what God has done for them rather than what they do or could do for themselves. If you're about to tell that story to a group of people that held David in the highest esteem possible, how could you possibly skip this part of the story? Because this part of the story underscores that when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And when God makes a promise, even the most heinous sin in the world cannot force God to go back on his word. And Matthew was about to tell the story of God making a new promise, a different kind of promise that made them made to David. It was a promise not made to an individual, but made to everyone in the world. And it would be sealed in blood, but not the blood of both parties, because it was only dependent on the one side. It was an unconditional promise of the one. And when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, it was the establishment of a brand new covenant between God and all of mankind. So as Matthew begins the story of Jesus, how could he not stop and emphasize the sin of the man that was most revered, the most revered Jewish man, and the man most closely associated with the Messiah? David, above all Old Testament characters, was a man who exemplified the vast grace mercy and forgiveness of God and that God unconditionally keeps his promises. And that's why you know his name today. So of course, Matthew thought this is a perfect illustration of the entire story I'm about to tell. And the angel said it better than anyone in the book of Luke, where we find the other record of the Christmas story. This is how Luke records it. 
Uh, this is what the angels say. I mean, you've heard it a thousand times, but now listen to it through this new filter. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. That God is making a promise for all people to you, to, to the good people and the bad people and the people that I know if I have to earn my way to God, then I have no hope because my life is as bad as David's. And the angel said, I've got good news for all people that today in the town of who? David. Here's what I hope for you as we come to the end of 2019 and go into 2020. And that for the rest of your life, that from now on at Christmas time or any time you read or hear the phrase, town of David, I hope it will be a reminder not just of the promise that God made to David, but for the promise that God made to you and to me. In the town of David, David the promise breaker, David the unfaithful, David who leveraged his power for personal gain, David who wrecked his family. David, who had an innocent man put to death to cover his own shame. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then in verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, and peace on those on whom his favor rests permanently. Listen, God promises you and he promises me peace. Peace with him. But the only way for you to have peace with God is for God to remove the obstacle between you and that peace. And do you know what that obstacle to peace is? It's sin. The reason you don't have peace with God, some of you, is because you're continuing to try and negotiate your sin. But the only way to have peace with God is for your sin, past, present, and future, to be removed. And this is the message of Christmas, that Jesus came to remove your sin today and tomorrow so that you and I can have peace with God today and tomorrow in 2020 and beyond. And if, you're, if you start telling me how bad you think you are or how you don't think you can come to God because of the sin in your life or the choices that you've made, I'll tell you the story of David all over again with the full ugly details. I'll tell you the story of Tamar. I'll tell you the story of Rahab who had the label of prostitute, but God gave a new label and put in the lineage of his own son. Some of you, some of you, many of you, most of you, You'd say, you're a Christian. You are a Christian. Maybe you prayed a prayer. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where you asked Jesus to come into your heart, and then you got baptized. And maybe you've been a Christian for many years, maybe even decades. But you still, if you're honest, struggle to have peace with God. Maybe it's because you're like me, and you struggle to trust. You struggle to trust that His grace and forgiveness is really that big. And so you're still negotiating your relationship with God through your failures and your broken promises and your sin and your performance as a Christian. If that's the case, you cannot ever have peace with God. You can't have the promise of Christmas until the, the obstacle of peace has been removed once and for all. And it's sin. 
And the promise of Christmas is that God sent his son into the world to once and for all permanently remove the obstacle between you and God. And God's promise can be trusted no matter how much you fall short. Matthew, the tax collector, experienced firsthand, and he knew a new covenant, a new agreement, a new promise has been initiated. And just as the promise of David was unconditional, so the promise to you and me is unconditional as well. And if you were to really be authentic with me, you might say, Chad, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I'm not a good person. I still fail. And what if I just continue to fail and sin again? Well, sin always has a consequence. And we see that in the life of David. In fact, most sins have a built-in consequence. And most of us have just experienced that because all of us carry regret. We made decisions that we knew we shouldn't make in the moment, and we made it anyways. And there's these consequences. But whether you're a Christian or not, as long as you keep trying to negotiate your sin with the goodness of God, with your goodness with God, you'll never, ever have peace with God. Because the message of Christmas is that peace with God cannot be earned through our promises and our efforts. The promise and the gift of forgiveness can only come through the one whose birth we celebrate in this season. Christ Jesus our Lord. So are you still coming to God with your past in mind? The past year in mind? The past week in mind? Are you somehow trying to leverage, well, I'm sinning less towards the end of the year, or I'm doing better. Uh, Have you put that away once and for all because you'll never have peace as long as you continue a performance-based relationship with God? Has there ever been a time in your life where you say, God, I want it. I I want you to get in my heart. I want you to impact my emotions. Uh, What I believe as much as I can believe is that when you died for me, you died for all of my sin, which means the obstacle of peace between you and I has been removed. And God, help me. Help me in my struggle. Help me in my struggle to believe that you have made an unconditional promise of life now, of eternal life. That you've made me an unconditional promise of your presence. And just as you kept your promise to David, you are the promise keeper. You will keep your promise to me. Have you ever made that exchange? Now, for some of you, Maybe you're still working that through. You're, not, you're just not quite there yet. Uh, you've been kind of wanting to know, when is this going to get over? I want to go get monkey bread. I want to beat the Baptists to the stores and finish shopping for presents, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but if you, you're listening to this and say, you know, that, I want that. Or for some of you, maybe, again, you've been a follower of Jesus for years. Or maybe you're on the other end, just hesitant across that line. But you still, because you still have so many doubts and concerns, but from time to time, you, you think, well, maybe he is listening, and I'll just pray. But, and you might say, you know, Chad, you're right. Every time I, I go to God, and, I, and I've been a Christian for a long time, every time I come to God, all I can think about is how I've fallen short this past week or just in my life. All I can think about is my failure and my past, and when I come to God, I can just think of my inconsistencies. And Chad, if and when I pray, all my prayers start something like this, listing out my failures and how I've fallen short. I feel so unworthy to pray or to ask Him for anything. In fact, if I'm honest, sometimes I don't want to pray because it just reminds me of how much I don't deserve anything from God. 
But I really would, I really would like to put that away once and for all. And the promise of Christmas is that you can. Because the hard work has been done, not by you, but by God. He paid for your sin, past and present and future. And it's no longer an issue with him. It's only an issue with you. So I'd like to invite Aaron to come on up. And uh, whether you, you've been a Jesus follower for decades or for not very long, um, maybe just now you're ready to take that step and entrust in your life and your future into his hands. You're someone who has questions, but deep down you believe he's the one that can bring peace between me and God. I just want to lead all of us together just through a short, simple prayer. If you're not there yet, that's okay. You can just stay silent. I'd never ask you to be fake. I'm just so glad you're here listening. But for the rest of you, maybe for some of you, again, just even after all these years, you would just like to reaffirm or move towards that sense of ultimate, lasting peace with God. And so I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm just, I want you to just pray it along with me. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and if you want what I've been talking about this morning, or to just reaffirm it in your heart, in your mind, in your life, just simply repeat this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, you're going to repeat it out loud. Heavenly Father, I believe you are the great promise keeper. As you kept your promise to David, I believe you will keep your promise to me to forgive me, to accept me, to love me. I will no longer come to you or avoid you on the basis on what I have or haven't done. Instead, I'll come boldly because of what you've done for me through Christ Jesus, my Savior, and my peace.